Welcome to this episode of the Star Wars Universe podcast. Friends, today we're talking about someone who does the impossible again and again, Grand Admiral Thrawn. And we're doing this because we have also done the impossible. We have gotten Rob McKenzie to consume Star Wars content after Disney. All that and more after commercial break, we have no control over. Welcome back. This is Matthew, your host. As I said, I've been joined by special guest Rob McKenzie. Uh, Rob has been on a number of episodes to talk about military ethics on the Superhero Ethics podcast, a great, lot, lot of great science fiction, and has been on a couple times to talk about Star Wars when we talked about the pre-Disney era of Star Wars and as well as the Legends canon a lot. Um, I know Rob, for the most part, not wanted anything to do with post-Disney, but when we talked a lot about Thrawn, I somehow talked him into reading the uh, the, the second of the Thrawn trilogies. It's just called Star Wars Thrawn, series of books, because there's then a Thrawn trilogy. Star Wars is really bad at naming these things, but this is the, the books Star Wars Thrawn, Thrawn Alliances, Thrawn Treason. It's the first set of books about Grand Admiral Thrawn that take place in the now canon Star Wars universe. Um, Rob, so good to have you here. And yeah, what was it like for you uh, kind of dipping into this side of things? It was really fascinating because reading the books, so I've actually read a bunch of other Timothy Zahn as well. And I went I went and stomped through like every Thrawn thing. You said, we want to do a podcast on Thrawn. And I went, all right, fine. I'm going to go reread Heir to the Empire. And then I'm going to go reread Spectre of the Past and Vision of the Future. And then I'm going to go read Outbound Flight because I apparently had just skipped that when I'd given up on everything. And so then I started reading through these books. And I'm like, I mean, I've read Timothy's on stuff outside of it. This is actually like he's progressed as a writer. He's good. He's got a lot of stuff going on. And the, there was a lot of strange stuff where because he's working in a shared universe – in the first book, he introduces a bunch of support characters. He introduces a bunch of stuff that's going on in the world. And then in the second book, it's all gone. Yeah. So it, he, <laughs> he basically built these toys and handed them to somebody else and then kept his Thrawn and then started to build other toys. And so it's very it's it's a little jarring that like it like Thrawn is just suddenly on his own. Like the book transition mm -hmm. is like, all right, now in this book, forget everything except this character. All of the yeah. other stuff, not really relevant. Uh, so first of all, I just want to say, for those of you who have not read the books, don't worry. We're going to summarize them a bit, but more, we're not really going to kind of give like reviews or, or moment by moment talking about the books. Mm -hmm. We're just going to kind of talk about the general themes and what these books tell us about the character and the world of Star Wars, especially because it has now been made very clear that this character will be coming back um, into the on-screen universe. Uh, he's in Rebels, which is canon, which a lot of people know, but also... Uh, in the show Mandalorian, when Ahsoka came back, Ahsoka talked about that she was hunting for Thrawn, um, and so it's pretty clear that he is going to be a character in this new part of Star Wars going forward. So, so it's just a lot of fun to talk about him. And but before we get into him, yeah, I think it's kind of interesting talking about these books themselves and Timothy Zahn as the writer of them because it's clear that two very different things were happening. You know, when he wrote the first set of books, we'd had the the novelization of the the movies. And maybe a couple of like little things here and there, but for the most part, these were the first Star Wars novels, uh, Heir to the Empire and the ones that came after it. And they kind of kicked off the whole Star Wars Legends canon. At that point, Lucas was very unclear about how much oversight or not oversight. And so Zahn is basically able to like create his whole new idea for a world. Now, before I think before these books are written, or certainly concurrently, the Thrawn character was brought back into 
uh, the canon with the Star Wars Rebels TV show. And these books have to fit into a much larger story. And so you both have the fact that Thrawn Thrawn and Zahn is probably not coincidental there. Uh, He's (laughs) writing... He's writing for a, in a much more complicated situation. It also feels like to me, I want to get your sense, but like in the original books, he is straight up a villain. He Darth Vader style assassinates one of his own subordinates for making a mistake. He's pretty happy to bombard civilians and do terrible things. He wants to bring back the Empire. Um, and in this, he he's A, just like he wins at everything. He's great. He's right. wonderful. Everything is about how the... This feels to me a little bit like the dungeon master who fell so in love with their NPC villain that they have to kind of be like, well, he's not really a villain. He's actually just the bestest best that anything has ever been best at. Right. Uh, which I don't mind. I love the character. But did, did you feel that kind of shift from the first set of books there's, to these? There's definitely a shift. The The Thrawn of the Legends canon is a strategic and ta- a, st- a strategic and tactical master. He's expressed as being a political master, and he does political maneuvering indirectly in fact, mm-hmm. by just, like, transferring money between accounts and then destroying the reputation of Admiral Akbar politically. Right. Like, which is it, it just good good strategy, but also politically very sound. And then in, in a lot of different scenes, he's explicitly amoral, right? He's, right? he's working with conscripts. Like you said, he executes one of his own bridge ensigns for trying mm-hmm. to push responsibility off because he's like, well, I've never, I was never trained for this. And he's like, fine, kill you. Person who was in charge of that guy, fix it, train somebody better next time. Yeah. And which is wild. And then he, he keeps the null cry in Like he could offer them a partnership, right? He could come to them and say, you know, the empire invader deceived me or the emperor invader deceived me. Yeah. Uh, just because yeah. the Nagrani are a race that are set up in those set of books as terrible things happen to their planet. The Emperor Invader went to their planet and was like, hey, we'll help you, but really just kept them in subjugation right. so they could be like badass warriors. Right. The, the Vader and the Emperor fundamentally were lying to them. The, it, like the planet had a – basically was uh, made – rendered nearly uninhabitable, and the Vader and the Emperor were able to clean it up, but they set the pace. They they deliberately right. slowed down their cleanup efforts in order to keep the Nograi's perpetual like honor slaves, and they right. they actually set it up to the point where the Nograi have these commando teams out in the Empire, that are the best of their youth, and here's the problem: they can't bring them home. They don't have enough food to feed them, so they both yeah. have pledged away their their children, and they can't bring them home even if they wanted to abandon the deal. They're literally just right. locked into into commando debt death slavery, and Thrawn just continues it, and he yeah. shows up because the one of the commander teams failed at a job that he gave them to like capture Luke Skywalker, which is a you don't you shouldn't get angry if your regular people can't capture Luke Skywalker, right? <laughs> right. And so he's like, hey, capture Luke Skywalker, capture Leia, capture their children. I've got this laundry list of impossible to capture people. You just need to go out and bring them in alive because I need them to, to right. give into my mad Jedi master as slaves, which also a little. Like giving children to a Jedi master, like yeah. a, a known crazy he, Jedi he's master. He's very much a villain. Yes, he's he, coded as the villain, and he's he's smart enough to be terrifying. Yes, but in the end, our heroes will always outsmart him. He's a, he's a, 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 a what what Zahn stated is he wanted a military villain. What he secretly right. wanted, I think, was Grand uh, was Grand Moff Tarkin. 
uh, yeah. who for his plot purposes, like, he had all these, like, unfortunate, like, I want this person, but they, like, are locked by by the movies or they died in the movies kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. he wanted somebody who was a military and political villain as opposed to Vader, who was just, like, a big monster and the Emperor, who is just, like, a, a space wizard working in the shadows, right? Right. And so he he designed an honorable, like, excellent, difficult-to-defeat political villain. Uh, politi- right. Sorry, military villain with some political aspects to them. Right. And then he over and over just, like, demonstrates this guy has no moral code, no ethical code. All he wants to do is resubjugate everybody. And then in later books, he starts retconning that, right? Even within Legends. Right. Because you don't know where Thrawn was in the intervening time. Right. In the in the Heir to the Empire books, he showed back up, and it's left very vague how he reclaimed the Empire for mm-hmm. himself. Like he, uh, his his Captain Paleon, the the captain of his flagship Chimera, is like impressed with working with Thrawn, happy that he's there. Thrawn didn't bring Chimera back from the unknown regions. It's never adequately explained how he just shows up and takes command. Right. And, what he, and so how does yeah. that differ from these books? Uh, from these books, so these books are structured in such a way where I don't know if Thrawn's ever going to go away. The way that mm-hmm. the way that in the Legends canon, the Emperor like had Thrawn as one of his Grand Admirals and then sent him to pacify the Unknown Regions. Right. And so he he is, that's how you can say that somebody this brilliant and useful is offstage for the whole, uh, the whole Endor to Yavin arc, right? right? Because otherwise the Emperor would have used him and used it like right. Thrawn would have been in command. It, like Paleon thinks over and over in the Legends books, what would have happened if Thrawn was in command right. of the fleet at Yavin? And I will say, in the in the again, one of the things that's really interesting about these books is they overlap a lot with the events happening in Star Wars Rebels. Yes. Uh, but I think it would be frustrating if you haven't seen that show. I won't get any spoilers of how it's done, but that 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 question of why wasn't Thrawn there for the Galactic Civil War in the original movies mm-hmm. is answered. In Star Wars yeah, Rebels. which it, um, it's it's a different answer because in yeah. the in the Legends canon he's sent away to pacify the unknown regions and he builds out an entire like secret military infrastructure of his own out there and leaves it waiting right. and tells them that if he goes to the Empire tries to reclaim it and apparently dies that he will return in ten years which is Spectre of the Past Vision of the Future right. where he ran a clone. Yeah, I don't want to get. I... I won't avoid spoilers for people who haven't seen Rebels. We won't get into yeah. How this it's is all legend there. stuff, so this is not spoiler. Like this is spoilers for books that are twenty years old, right? right. And so th- that's a whole thing that he does out there. There's also Outbound Flight, which is his first engagement with the Empire, which is nodded at a little bit in these new books, but not explicitly canon. Right. Right. So how do you in terms of like the the morality of the character like how do you see his character being different in these in these books? So his his character in these books is not explicitly like he doesn't he doesn't subjugate people. He's not explicitly amoral. He's kind of right. he's a he's a pure military man, right? Yeah. He follows the military code of ethics, the military code of justice. He mm-hmm. but he's willing to bend it. Uh, notably in the Chiss books, he's willing to outright ignore pro- military prohibitions that he thinks are stupid. Right. Like, one of the things that I find most interesting about his character is where before he... And this is where I think, again, Zahn has kind of fallen in love with the character and wants to shift mm-hmm. him to being more of a an anti-hero or, rather than just a villain. In these books, he explicitly does not like civilian casualties. Yes. And he wants to avoid them whenever possible. He wants to avoid the death of his enemies whenever possible. And 
he had at least here he justifies his approach to the empire in that he believes and this is a belief that i think myself and i think a lot of people might thoroughly reject but it's presented in at least a way that makes sense for him he believes that the Repu- like he uh, and in the second book we get him like basically investigating the republic during the clone wars and coming to the conclusion that democracy is too weak especially as the Republic was practicing it, that yeah. that bureaucracy and democracy and corruption, that it leaves them open to being unable to deal with a massive outside threat, right. and which proves to be true in the course of the Empire. And, and, and so his whole perspective is he thinks that the universe is better when there is one strong power that can fight outside forces and deal with, you know, and it's like if you listen to the people who talk about like, you know, why dic- the people who want dictators, the people who talk about, you know, you look at how awful things in Russia were 20 years mm-hmm. ago and that Putin made things better, that Mussolini made the trains run on yep. time. We know these things to be horribly fascist and terrible and bad, but you can understand why people in the midst of utter chaos would want that. Right. And, and I think that's really where they position uh, Thrawn and that Thrawn doesn't like the Emperor and he but he it's sort of like the Emperor's the best game in town yeah and so if this is my if this is my way to bring about stability and order and give my own people the chiss and ally if and when a major enemy appears this is what I got to do right he he spends a lot of a lot of time in these books like running his own basically scam inside of the Empire right yeah he his ships are run differently. His fleet is, operate, is operated on lines of honor, of military respect, and is ruled through like an esprit de corps, right? And right. he and there's actual meritocracy within his ships. There's uh, explicit racism and sexism, or species of and sexism within the empire, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the empire military basically is a two track system. It has white humans, or well, not just white humans, human males, right? Are track right. one. They go to the best academies. They get the best treatment. They get uh, they get bumped up for promotions despite being like mathematically inferior in a lot of cases. Then there's the right. the women and non-humans track, and it's in the in the legends canon. This is explicit that they right. are doing this. Uh, they they don't say that, but they know. Everybody knows. The, and people talk right. like people think about it and talk about it. They're like, yeah, the two track system. We don't know how Thrawn got up to Grand Admiral when there there was no way for him to ever rise up to even right. captain. And in the legends, if I'm right, I don't have to go too yeah. deep into this, but I just want to make sure this is right. In part, that's because the Emperor himself has very strong, yes. like jingoistic yes. humans. Humans are best feeling. Yes, absolutely. That's the that's the 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 way the Emperor runs things is humans are better than everybody else. Everybody else is kind of terrible. And like if you look at the way that they that the that the Clone Wars and the Separatists were structured, the Separatists weren't humans for the most part, right? Right. And so, the, it, like, it looks like this is a, like, this is the Emperor, like, keeping his, his hatred and his, his unhappiness with non-human Separatists up and live during, right. um, it, it, like, after, after it became useful to him. And in these books, it's more subtle, but they actually, there's a moment where, uh, Thrawn is talking to Eli Vanto, mm-hmm. who's a major character in the first book and somewhat in the third book. He's kind of the—I I think in many ways Thrawn is kind of a Sherlock Holmes character. Yes. And certainly the Sherlock—in the in, in both the original books and the new books, they use that storytelling technique of 
the person who is both driven to distraction and frustration by this character, but also greatly admires yes. this character, a Watson character yes. basically, is the main narrator. Yeah, a, a Watson Eli is that, character, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Watson expository, exactly. Eli Vanto is that in the first book, and there's a great scene where Thrawn is, because in part this is a very big difference from what you said about the first set of books, yeah. Thrawn is not a political animal in this. He's almost, right. I, I, I am an neurodivergent person, and so I, I want to, like, I don't, it's never stated in those terms, but I think you could read it in that way, in that he he understands strategy, he understands tactics, he understands things that follow very specific rules. He doesn't understand politics right. at all. Um, and, and so Eli is trying to explain something to him and part of which he's trying to explain the, uh, massive, uh, bias against non-humans in a lot of the empire. And, and the way he says it is it's because the separatists were almost entirely non-human. And so there's that strong feeling and to which Thrawn responds. And again, this kind of like country bumpkin showing you wisdom kind of way. Why don't you just not trust the specific races that fought against you? And Eli's like, ah, well, yeah. you know. Eli's like, look, people aren't rational, <laughs> basically. <Yeah. laughs> and Thrawn's like, that's an interesting viewpoint. And so Thrawn is, Thrawn is, um, he's blind to motivations. He's good at dealing with results. He's bad at dealing with motivations. Is actually how I'd put right. it in a lot of ways. Uh, if if people have what we would consider irrational motivations, right? He's not. Right. He just he just doesn't get it. He looks at their capabilities. He looks at what they're going to do. He chesses out all of their potential moves to go towards their thing. He treats their motiva- motivations as, like, once he finds them out, like, this is what they are. But he can't reason them out. Right? Right. And so in political systems, he can't his, – his theory of mind is very good at military things and very bad at non-military things. He's very right. good at figuring out art. He's very bad at figuring out, like – what the hidden currents of power are in a in a political system and i think that this is very deliberate in order to provide him with a weakness basically Mm -hmm. um he uh, like zahn wants a character where he can have a reason for other people to support in the system right and thrawn is inherently like he's unlikable as a person the, the people who he's friends with are people who are, he's militarily friends with. He doesn't really have any any just chatting chums or pals, right? I, I would disagree. I, I think Eli Vanto, like, uh, I will say in the um, uh, fan fiction community, the uh, Thrawn-Eli Vanto dynamic is one that is probably one of the most written up. Sure. Often as just a, like, a mentor and a mentee and a deep connection there, often seen as a romance, which I think there is some... I don't think Zahn put it there, yeah. but I think it's easy to read that yeah. into it. So I, I think Vanto definitely has a very strong connection to but, him. But I think you're right. Most others don't. But the they, he, Thrawn doesn't make Eli as a friend, and Eli doesn't make Thrawn as a friend. They they are continually assigned together, right? Yes, yeah, that's what you're saying. They don't have any choice in that matter. If you if you are stuck with somebody who has positive features about them for long enough, and you're an easygoing person, because Eli Vanto is easygoing. He tries to make friends right. with everybody that he, or at least not also enemies true. with everybody that he gets connected with. And right. Thrawn doesn't want to be his enemy, so they're going to end up being allies. But right. like, I don't think he would choose necessarily, especially early on, to be friends with Thrawn. It takes a long association for him to be like yeah. Thrawn's ally. Yeah, they're definitely people who I think they build. I think by the end they have a very yes. strong loyalty to each yes. other and, and affection for each other, expressed as in their kind of rigid military situation they're in. 
but but yeah, it it is a relationship born of, of situation, not of one of these people being like, "You're awesome. I want to be your bestie." Yeah, exactly. And you don't if you look at Thrawn's relationships, he's got one. He's got precisely one relationship where in the in the prequel Thrawn books in the Chiss area that is not based on a military hierarchy, right? Right. And that's only because he was he he was temporarily unguarded in a moment with a small child. Yeah. <laughs> and the, 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 the small child, like straight up, like this is the canonical ship is they like, yeah. she wants, she wants to be withdrawn romantically and she can't figure out a way to do so within the structures of like anything. Right. And we'll, we'll talk yeah. about those books in a different podcast, but yeah. but yeah, he's very much present. And I think this is in part why so many people have fallen in love with the character is he's very much presented as an enigma, yes. you know, in part because we we occasionally get his point of view, but only in terms of like another character will speak and then you'll hear his voice saying like his face indicates this. So it's just yes. Thrawn's analysis of others. It's still never there's never Thrawn's internal monologue. Yeah, he, which... he gets no viewpoint, and it actually in Thrawn Alliance is the second book, which I think is might be one of the best like Star Wars books I've ever read. Honestly, the, the mm-hmm. book is so good. Uh, yeah. In that book, Timothy Zahn was kind of stuck. He knew he was obligated to have so, Thrawn and Vader together, right? Sorry. So let's back up. Let's just do a quick summary of each one of the three yeah. books. Uh, we're not going to do a full plot summary, but yeah. um, Rob, you wrote some fun things. Do you want to kind of just yeah. give a, a summary yeah. of the book? So in Star Wars Thrawn, um, it's it's fundamentally Thrawn's introduction to the Empire and his rise up to Admiralty. Is the is the big right. is the big picture? He gets picked up on a on a planet by the Empire. He demonstrates how awesome he is by like ambushing and killing a bunch of stormtroopers and sneaking onto the onto the ship. Um, he he gets dragged to the Emperor, meets the Emperor, name drops Anakin Skywalker, and you're like, how in the hell does this idiot know Anakin Skywalker, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. um, he, so the Emperor drops him into the pr- most prestigious military academy. Thrawn wins at everything, all the time. Everything he does at the Academy is perfect. And right. he gets assigned to a ship as a first lieutenant. And uh, Eli Vanto gets kind of towed along because he speaks one language in common with Thrawn. And he so he's assigned as translator and, like, assistant. Which is weird because right. nobody at that level gets, like, a, a personal assistant. Um, and parallel to that, uh, I don't know how you pronounce her because I've only read her uh, Arinda Price. Yeah. So, uh, which yeah. again, people who've seen Star Wars Rebels yes. will know, she's the governor of Lothal. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this is kind of her origin story. Yes. She's one of the main antagonists in Star Wars Rebels, and so here we get to yes. see her. And it was really fun because at first she seems like a sympathetic character. She becomes very much not so. Uh, I think she's and, still sympathetic. And... Like at the end of it, that, that's one of the things that Timothy Zahn does really well. Is at the end of it, I'm like, I get it. I understand why you're doing what you're doing. Right. Right. Which is funny because in, in, it's it's again one of those times where I feel like Thrawn and the writers of Rebels were not quite on the same. Like Thrawn wanted the characters to do things in Rebels that they weren't quite doing. Zahn, you mean? Um, Zahn, yeah. yeah, sorry, yeah, Zahn. Uh, but anyway, so go on with yeah. the, uh And so like, that book. um, then the the second half of the book is basically Thrawn and the military winning at everything. Um, right. he gets an antagonist finally. And it's basically a, somebody who's running their own pocket rebellion and doing a bunch of smuggling. And he's right. a smuggler. He's a revolutionary. He's very smart. Um, he outsmarts Thrawn in their first encounter, basically, because Thrawn underestimated him. Um, right. 
And the rest, a bunch of their, like, Thrawn is spending a bunch of time trying to figure out, like, where this guy is, what he's doing. And uh, while he's picking up missions and getting getting aggressively promoted up. Um, and he gets all the way up to Admiral by the time he has the final encounter with Cygnus. Um, they finally are at the same place at the same time, and Thrawn offers, he's like, here's a deal. I can't offer you a deal with the Empire. Right. Everybody hates you. You're a revolutionary. And he says, right. instead, I'm a member of a second military on top of this military. <laughs> uh, I can offer you a position with the Chiss. The Chiss would take you in. You'd be great with the Chiss. You'd join their system. Uh, you'd learn all sorts of things. They'd learn all sorts of things from you. It'd be great. You'd be really useful there. And Cygnus is like, get wrecked and sets off a bomb and kills a whole bunch of people, including himself. Right. Uh, he's like, I'm not going to take offers from you. Um, yeah. it, it's actually Price yeah. who sets off the bomb. Price sets yes, up. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. Cygnus set up yeah. the bomb. And then Price right. actually, but yeah. And the Cygnus character to me is so important because it's the – Cygnus is – first of all, Cygnus and, and these books in general is kind of a nice reminder that like before Mon Mothma and Leia Organa, like there have always been people who were kind of low-level fighting against the mm -hmm. Empire. Like that for those 20 years, there have been these little brush fires that the Empire is putting out. Right. And, and that – so we get to have a because he at one point like challenges Thrawn directly and says, "Look, you seem like a decent person. Why are you supporting this tyrannical military? Why are you supporting this emperor?" And that's where Thrawn yes. gets to kind of you know explain his perspective yep. of you know I'm doing this for the strength. And and this is also where we at the start of this book it's portrayed as though Thrawn has been cast out by yes. the Chiss, and so he's like, "F the Chiss, I want to hop on this this bandwagon." But by the end, it's been very clear that. He sees the Empire not as the end, but as a means to it. He sees it as a tool of the Chiss needs another strong ally, and the Republic was too weak. The Empire could be our ally against other strong things. Right. And so it's a it's a great way of sort of showing where Thrawn stands in all these kind of different and, different complicated questions. And you also have to question who Thrawn's lying to, because he's lying to somebody. At the end of the at the beginning of the book, when he gets brought into the Emperor, his pitch to the Emperor is, "I was exiled by the Chiss alone on this planet." Your empire picked me mm -hmm. up, and I, I would I would love to join you because I don't have any loyalty to the Chiss anymore. They exiled me to a to a jungle planet in the middle of nowhere. Right? Screw right. it. Like exactly what you're saying. But at the end, uh, he makes this pitch to Cygnus, and he tells Cygnus, and then he tells Eli Vanto this later as well. The exile was a ruse. We put uh, he was placed on multiple planets repeatedly, hoping to catch the Empire so that they would pick him up. And he right. he's still loyal to the Chiss military, and that whole XL thing, totally like totally fake, right? Everything was specifically set up to make it look like he had been there for a while, but he hadn't. Uh, he claimed he, he told the Emperor he'd been there five years. He says he'd been there a month. Right. And so he like it's clear he's lying to somebody because he could be lying to Eli Vanto. That's a thing. Right, he could be using Eli Vanto as a bargaining chip, it, like send him back to the Chiss, have the Chiss interrogate him for everything he's worth to try to get back into the Chiss military, right? Right. And so it's very easy to see that he, one of the he's either lying to Eli, his only friend, right, <laughs> and or he's lying to the Emperor, who can have him executed, right? right. <laughs> and, and which is also an important to note, like he knows that Eli Vanto has no ability to read his mind. The Emperor yeah. possibly does. Yeah. I do think, though, because one of the other things about one of the other really important plot points that happens is 
both of them are coming to understand more and more about the evils of the empire. Right. And I, I think even in this book, the Death Star is starting to be discussed. Start, like, they're, they're, they mention yeah, the Stardust right. Project, yeah. They mention the Stardust Project. Uh, they mention actually in a really powerfully disturbing scene, uh, Wookiee slaves yes. are being used. Yes. And, and Eli is horrified by it. Thrawn is like, well, they're Imperial assets. Yes. You know, he's like, and that's that's where some of that immorality well, comes through. The, the, the Wookiee slaves aren't being actively captured. He knows they're being taken from the from from Kashyyyk to, through this one station, that is not right. within his sphere of responsibility. But something is happening that he gets to touch it, and he sees the ships that have been carrying Wookiee slaves, and Eli's like, "We should not be dealing with. Wh why are we enslaving Wookies?" And Thrawn goes, "Well, they're not slaves. Yeah, <laughs> like that's not how I see them, and we need to make sure that right. they're ta taken well care of and not being like randomly killed by pirates." And Eli's like, that's both right and wrong at the same time, you know? So Thrawn demonstrates that he doesn't really care what the Emperor is doing to to the Wookiees, right? Right. Yeah, and it's it's one of the things where, again, I think we do see he he's not mustache-twirlingly malevolent the way he was to some extent in the Air yeah. of the Empire books. Although he is very critical of the Vader style. Like, like Vader kills subordinates out of anger— he kills subordinates because he thinks it is good strategy yes. for the motivation of others. Exactly. He can question if he's right, and but still he 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 is very good at rationalizing things. Yes. That he has a, like, I think that he believes that he, Thrawn to me, especially in these books, is the epitome of the ends justify the means. Yes. And that, um, what I think is really interesting is, and this is why I don't think he's lying to Vanto. Or at least I do think he has Vanto's yeah. best interests very much at heart. Vanto gets to the point where he cannot do that anymore. He cannot stay within the Empire. Thrawn knows he's going to be in trouble, and so that's part of why he arranges for Eli to be sent to the chest, which I think is very self-serving for, for Thrawn, don't get me wrong, but I think he knows that, like, this is the escape that Vanto needs at this point. I think Thrawn actually also has this problem where he sent— you can, you can read between the lines that he sent a message home to, right. uh, to um, Admiral Arlani and tells her— I have a great prospect to join the Chiss military. I'll let you know when I have more, but I think I'm going to be able to send you a person. He, I think he planned to send Cygnus with Eli as a backup all the time, like for the last chunk of the book. Mm. It, I think it's probably true. Because that's what it feels like structurally, where it's like... Yeah. And so he just, he's like, well, Cygnus fell through. I desperately need a bridge to the Chiss military from, uh, from the Imperial side. And so I'm going to send him Eli. Uh, right. Because he doesn't need to. I think that he could have kept Eli in check by just running his own fleet, better, uh, like, yeah. uh, like ship shape, right? And he he loses a lot of capability when he ships Eli away because Eli's not incompetent mm -hmm. by any stretch. No. And yeah, a lot of the there's kind of a fun aspect of like f financial investigation that's happening mm -hmm. that a lot of what happens is that Eli is able to kind of read the books because he's, he's an accountant by trade yeah. to figure out like there's all this discrepancy in terms of where Imperial resources are going. Yeah. And, and I want to move to the second book, which is the last thing I want to say on that is for me, Vanto saying he cannot be part of the military is a very important part of the book yes. because as I'm reading most of the book, I'm thinking Zahn I, little six-year-old me, thought that everybody in the Empire was evil McEvil pants, and so we should have no problem killing them by the thousands. Yep. And now you're giving me a relatable moral character who wears a Imperial uniform. Oh, okay, wait, no. He's, if he's that good of a person, he wouldn't be in the Empire. 
we're fine. I can still be okay with blowing up all the Imperials. But hold that thought till we get to book three. Right. Um, so let's talk about book two now. What happens in book in, two? In book two, um, book two is two buddy cop movies. And yeah, it's it, it's friggin' it. great. So um, Thrawn Alliances is structured with like present time and flashbacks of a running a running story where Thrawn teams up with Vader in the present and with Anakin Skywalker in the past. And in the same spaces out in the unknown regions, out in space outside the Empire, but not controlled by the Chiss either in these like lawless backwater planets, right? right. And the 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 they they both do very interesting and fascinating things because the 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 history is about Anakin learning how to trust a non-human that he doesn't know that he can't read the mind of because he can't tell like for some reason like like Timothy Zahn wants Thrawn to be super special and un unknowable and so like Force users can't get nothing but static from his mind whenever they try right. Um, Which also helps explain why he's been able to be kind of a double agent right. without the Empire pick, Emperor picking up right. on him. And so the – and it's left unclear whether or not this is all Chiss or just Thrawn because there aren't really a lot of engagements with Jedi and other Chiss in these books, and other authors treat everything right. differently. Uh, the, the thing that I was going to say before about this is uh, Zahn backed himself into a corner a little bit because he never allows extended viewpoints for Thrawn. Um, in right. fact, it, it, so it's written as third person omniscient as a as with a viewpoint character, right? And mm -hmm. so he's stuck. You don't want Darth Vader to be a viewpoint character either, optimally. Like if you had your choice, there you would have Thrawn be an unknowable, inscrutable, like like enigma about what he thinks, right. and you would also have Vader being un inscrutable and unknowable, right? Like that's yeah. your optimal situation. Is these people are both spooky and threatening, and you don't want to be inside their heads. But he has to be inside Vader's head because Vader's the only person who's in all of the relevant scenes in the right. Vader stuff. And so you get a whole bunch of Vader viewpoints and a whole bunch of Anakin viewpoints, which is actually really interesting because you get to contrast like how an author will treat the same character across the the Vader yeah. barrier and how much Vader hates Anakin Skywalker. Right. Yeah, I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the book is that it – and apparently this is something that's now been expanded on a lot mm -hmm. of the other canon novels as well, uh, is is this, like, getting to better understand Vader's feelings, you know? Right. And that Vader, um, one of the things is that because of his seeing, you know, if you remember, like, most people who knew Anakin Skywalker are long dead. Yes. Um, and with, a couple, with the exception of a couple of Imperial admirals and a couple of Imperial officers, I mean. And, like, in some other media, there's some indications that Thrawn, that, um, uh, uh, Tarkin knows that Vader is who used to be Anakin. And certainly in this book, from the very beginning, Thrawn suspects, and by the end it's been confirmed. And yeah. it's very clear that Vader, one of the many reasons he does not like Thrawn is because he, that Thrawn knew Anakin. Yes. And, and just he has so much, like, Anakin is dead, everything about Anakin has to be dead. Um, and, and so, yeah, that that's just a fascinating dynamic, I think, of getting to see an inside vader's head yeah and and anakin's head and getting to see thrawn observe all that right and so the what it feels like is the emperor has set himself up for failure as an empire because he's very few people that he can trust right, right. he has tarkin vader the emperor will work for the empire krellick the one who runs the death star he trusts enough to build a death star right and then where's the rest of his uh, list? Krennic. Uh, sorry krennic 
Um, yeah. It, like, where's the rest of his list? Where are his top assets? Right. right. Like, there a, a, a star destroyer has a crew of sixteen thousand. Right. And that's incredibly huge. That's a city. Right. Right. And he apparently can't trust any of those people enough to give them real tasks. Right. He he can't trust people to to do things without his direction. He he. The the beginning of the book, the emperor senses a disturbance in the force off in this space, and he's like, "All right, my list is exactly one person who I can send on a on a mission to deal with the disturbance in the force, which is Darth Vader, right? right? That he's my Sith apprentice. That's the person that I got. So I have to send Vader. Now here I have a problem. Vader is a hammer. If I send him there to deal with this problem, he will just burn and salt the earth. And then come back and report that everything related to this disturbance of the force is dead. Right. And so I need somebody who can tell Vader no. Who can figure out what the source of this is, come back with a reason to like actually write me a report. Because Vader does not right. write reports. He hands me a skull. Right? And in this regard, it's awesome because Thrawn, even though Thrawn almost never writes about the Sith themselves, what what Thrawn sets up here... I'm Zahn. Sorry, what Zahn. <laughs> Zahn, let me say it again. Zahn almost never writes about the Sith themselves, mm -hmm. but in this, what the Emperor is doing is perfect Sith philosophy because he was, he has two people he wants to test. Mm -hmm. He wants to test Vader to see if with some outside influence, Vader can be less of a hammer. Yeah. But also, uh, and this is referred to often in the books, uh, so you don't even need to have seen the show, but this is seen after uh, our heroes have defeated Th Thrawn quite significantly in a situation where Thrawn yep. was supposed to have wiped out that part of the rebellion and failed to. And Vader is constantly needling him about this. And so you kind of have two people, both of whom are, are the people you trust, both of whom have exposed a weakness. You're putting them together in a situation to work together. Given Sith philosophy, I think it is in, I think the Emperor is very aware that it's possible that only one of these two come back. Yep. And he thinks that's fine. Yeah. Because the whole Sith idea of you're tested through combat, you're tested through competition. And, and in some ways also, it's it, part of why the Emperor has doesn't trust anybody is because the Sith have never been military people. The Sith have always been, we're going to hide in the shadows, it's just us, it's just the two of us. Uh, the novel Darth Plagueis, which is not canon, mm -hmm. but is basically canon yeah. in terms of how often it's referred to, one of the things it sets up is this idea of once the Sith like announce themselves and actually actually take over, now they're in the situation they've never felt before where they have to work with people when they used to all just work in the secret. Right. And so I think part of this is the emperor trying to decide, can I trust a military leader? Right. Or do I just trust the other force users I know? Right. Um, so it's just, it, it, everything about it makes so much sense yeah. and it's so brilliantly set up by Zahn. Yeah. And structurally, the, it's fascinating because like I went into this book, I was like, all right, we're going to get some connection back to the Chiss because this is kind of out in Chiss space. So Eli Vanto is going to be over with the Chiss. Nothing. Eli is not on stage for this whole book, right? Yeah. And the, his entire support network, thrown away. Everybody that he's built up in the previous books, except for Pharaoh, who was kind of really secondary, um, is just gone. And so Pharaoh right. gets a lot more development because there's nobody else around, right? And she's really good. Mm -hmm. I like her a lot. Right. But there's, there's hardly anybody. Uh, the one thing that gets to this gets to explore is um, Vader needs a minder, which is really interesting, because mm -hmm. Vader is an unstoppable force. The five hundred first, his uh, his elite super legion of stormtroopers, at a couple different points, like pins down enemies and can't beat them, and Vader comes in and wipes them out alone, with it, like right. with the legion just having like pinned down the enemy, and then he just comes in and demolishes them, right? 
And so he's demonstrated as being in combat much more valuable than an entire stormtrooper legion, right? right? Or an entire stormtrooper, I guess he just has an equivalent of a platoon. There's probably 40 stormtroopers with him. And he, so he's demonstrated as being a monster in combat, but he gets pinned down once by some anti-Jedi tech. They have, like, quick-setting cement, right? Yeah. And then in the next time they're going to engage with the same group of people quick-setting cement, uh, Thrawn, like, basically talks him into having a plan before it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you're very powerful. Can you puppet a second set of your armor? Like, have a fake Vader running around that you're using with the Force? And Vader's like, yeah, I don't see why I would do that, though. Why would I make this decision? Why wouldn't I just go in and kill them all? Thrawn's like, here's the deal. You make them waste all of their resources on the fake Vader. You pull the lightsaber out of its hands to you, and then you come in and kill them once you've gotten rid of all of their real defenses against you. Vader's like, yeah, I like that. And yeah. so he he needs somebody who can tell him no, though. Because Thrawn multiple yeah. times does. Just tell him no. Like, we're, like we could do that. I could or, You can order my ship to do that if you kill me. That's your choice. It, it, and this... Re- yeah. I think this is brilliant because it explains something that about the original movies. As someone who first watched A New Hope as a kid and then watched the other two movies mm-hmm. and then was, you know, part of talking about everyone, I think it's easy to forget that in the first movie, A New Hope, Vader is not in command. Tarkin is. Right. And I think Tarkin is very much what you're talking about. Vader is kind of like the weapon that Tarkin controls. Yes. And, you know, but when Tarkin says, like, you know, enough of this, Vader, don't choke out the guy who insulted your religion, Vader's like, you know, as you wish. Yeah. Don't think he means it the way Wesley does, but, you know, it's the Mm -hmm. same idea. Um, And, yeah, and, like, to me, reading this, it now makes the relationship between Tarkin and Vader makes so much more sense in that part of of what they're having. Yeah. That's what what happens in Empire is that now Empire Strikes Back is Vader off the leash. Right. You know, because he doesn't have a minder anymore. Right. He has no minder. And, like, if Thrawn was at Cloud City, he wouldn't have altered the deal. Right? He wouldn't have needed yeah. to alter the deal. He would have made a better deal in the first place. Right? Right. And so the whole the whole interaction, he would have made an ally instead of conquering Cloud City. Um, he might have conquered Cloud City, but he would have done it with a much softer glove. Than, than Vader does. And that's why I think that's, like, from a plot perspective, it's, like, kind of unfortunate that Tarkin dies in the first Death Star. Because mm-hmm. he's a really useful character. There's not, like, the number of people who can tell Vader no, then, is just the Emperor. That's the only one that's left at that point. Right. And the, much later, when the Emperor tries to tell Vader no, Vader finally turns on him, right? Yeah. In, in it, Jedi. Yeah. It, it, it's hard, because I, I love Tarkin. I want to see more of Tarkin. But I also think that, like, with Tarkin still there, Empire Strikes Back doesn't make any sense, you know, because the whole point is that Vader is now right. on his own. Right. Um, and th- that's but, a, that's a fascinating thing about a lot of these is it, like it, yeah. they're what ifs, but you know what the what if is, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. I will say again, um, there's some great uh, Clone Wars. Uh, there's great some great stuff in both Clone Wars and Rebels of Tarkin interacting with Anakin or Vader that I think you'd really enjoy. I'll see if I can find Maybe I'll watch Rebels. You keep recommending it, so. Yeah. Uh, well, if you don't want to watch it, myself and uh, people you yeah, know yeah, well, yeah. Riki and Sarah Hayashi, we're doing episodes about it, so check that uh, out. I, I, um, I will, maybe I'll just listen to you because I like Riki. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> uh, let's talk about the third book then, so Thrawn Treason. Thrawn Treason is a very weird book. Um, <laughs> it really it, is. It really is. Um, most of what matters in this book is entirely hidden. It, it doesn't seem to have a plot for about the first half of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the simplest through line 
Thrawn, uh, apparently the Grand Admirals are running their own secret projects within the Empire, right? Or there are multiple secret projects. Thrawn has decided to make Tide Defenders. He wants space superiority fighters that can beat X-Wings, right? And right. he, it, that's, this is a complicated manufacturing problem. It's a complicated logistical problem. It's a complicated training problem. And so he's trying to get the budget to build a fleet of new space superiority fighters that are incredibly expensive and incredibly technologically advanced. And so he has the TIE Defender program. Um, the he doesn't he has to fight for his budget, and he's offered. He knows that there's another project that's sucking up all of the budget in the room. All of the air in the room is going towards the Stardust program, which is the Death Star, right? Right. And so he is tasked with uh, solving a supply chain disruption that in the Death Star's secret supply chain. And he's told that if he doesn't solve, if he successfully solves this, then he'll receive the budget for the TIE Defender program. Right. And so he's out there doing things that, like, you as a character know were smart, because he was tasked, he was given a timeline to figure out, like, their attacks by basically vermin on ships. Space vermin, basically super mm -hmm. Minox, right? And... He's spending a bunch of time figuring out the characteristics of these, what makes them attack. Can somebody force them to attack? And he discovers that people can force them to attack. And then he looks at the ships that are being stolen. He gets them analyzed. He figures out what's being t actually taken from the program. And it's kind of, it's really fascinating, but it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. Right. Right. He, it, like, it, it's kind of interesting from the, like, we're learning more about the Empire. We're learning more about the process yeah. that created the death star we're learning about the imperial politics but yeah it's more of a like guidebook to this period of time and, and it's really it in a, the a weeds, novel right where he's just like spending all this time messing around with supply chain logistics right mm -hmm. and so then the uh, there's a parallel plot where the chiss are pursuing the grisks who are the big villain from the thrawn prequel books right uh, the, right. Su the super prequel books the ones set in chiss land and so there's a bunch of their navigators have been kidnapped. They're trying to track them down. Eli Vanto's do, off doing stuff with that. and Which I just need to say one thing yeah. quickly on. One of the things that's introduced about the Chiss that I both love and then hate yeah. for one small reason is the interest is that part of why he's fascinated by the forces. They don't call it the force. But there are some Chiss, particularly young girls. I think sometimes young boys, but mostly young girls. I think it's all young girls. Who, oh, yeah. yeah, that may well be. Um, who develop a, a form of force power. They don't have that words until he meets uh, yeah. Anakin. Um, but basically it allows them to be kind of super navigators, in part because the Chiss don't have a lot of the technology that the Empire slash Republic did, including the, the yeah. super nav computers. So they have these like 10-year-old girls helping to navigate through space, but then by the time that they're like 12 or 13, their force powers fade. Right. All that's great. We mostly talk about that when we talk about the Chiss books because it yeah. goes into much more detail about there. But they call them Skywalkers. Yeah. And I'm just like, I, I hope that was Lucas Lucasfilms or Disney forcing that on Zahn. Because it's just like, it's just a little too cute. And it just bothers the hell out of me. So it's <laughs> a dumb little detail. It's, it's but... a dumb little detail. They are industrial force users. And it solves the question of why aren't there any Jedi plumbers? Oh, yeah. Everything else I love about yeah. it. It's just the name. Yeah. Everything else is great. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> um, and so uh, there's this whole, like, that's going on at the same time. Thrawn, like, tracks down that there's somebody actually skimming these shipments off. And he's mm. 
like he spends a bunch of this book like doing a lot of like going out to the middle of nowhere figuring out like that things have gone badly in a in a backwater situation everybody betrays everybody it turns out there's secret double agents all over the empire is untrustworthy on every level and Mm -hmm. then at the very end thrawn has figured out the whole puzzle 200 pages before you get there as a as a reader right and so thrawn at the very end of the book like the whole book is summed up in this in this microcosm of thrawn was running a whole second book in the background while you were reading this in the weeds logistics book Right. Which is a very Sherlock Holmes yeah, thing, so it's where a, it's like Sherlock Holmes knew all these things that no one noticed. Right. And so, like, the, the very end of the book, there's this scene where he places himself on the bridge of a different ad- Grand Admiral's ship who has a whole fleet that has come in. And it turns out the Grand Admiral is scamming the Empire, and he's the one who's diverting all these resources from the Death Star Project. And the the other Grand Admiral is like, look, you have, you've brought in your fleet. We're going to have an engagement. You aren't even on the bridge, and you're their biggest tactical asset. And Thrawn's response is, if you think that I'm necessary to to the running of my fleet, then I think that you're sorely, mista- sorely mistaken, basically. And he chest the whole engagement out before it started. Like, n- every single maneuver from every ship it, it was completely anticipated by Thrawn. And right. it has one little bit where Pharaoh makes one... Um, one decision that makes the situation a little bit better but it's the the thing is that all the decisions everything breaks thrawn's way all the time is uh, is how it goes when his allies make tactical decisions or tactical decisions that reinforce his decisions right and this is why especially it feels to me like this is when it's zon has so fallen in love with the character because like it makes her a fun book but it's also a it's a little bit like okay so he's super mixed super pants i get it yeah but also then it doesn't – the only conclusion you can draw about this is that the four people, the four or five people who are the main characters of Rebels are actually the smartest people in the galaxy. Right. Because everyone else is hopeless against Thrawn, and yet these people consistently defeat him. <laughs> and it's just like it, – it's the problem where someone is the main yeah. protagonist in one set of media and the antagonist in another right. – that just like it, it just doesn't line up. Right, and it's it's kind of like hand waved in that the other Grand Admiral is a musical composer and Thrawn like, Thrawn because of his secret special art powers, which is a weird mm-hmm. which is a weird cool power to have that was just kind of thrown in I think for flavor, and now it's just like yeah. so important to the character. It makes Zahn makes you believe that Thrawn can look at a piece of art and figure out a civilization or a person from it, right? Which I've seen both. Picasso's and Jackson Pollock's and like there's differences in different parts of America you know right. American art earth art any of that stuff but anyway right. moving but, on but the point being is that like it's very much hand wavy but he keep like he writes with a lot of conviction that this is a thing that Thrawn can do and so Thrawn was right. able to figure out what was going on based on this guy writing symphonies and directing and composing his own music uh, because mm-hmm. apparently his talent works on art of any form including music and the the thing that happens at the end is that Thrawn then loses he wins every battle but loses the war right. which is also like the structure of basically the heir to the empire books where Thrawn wins every battle and loses the war. Right. Right. Where finally at the end, he's like, uh, um, like the, um, 
it's all kind of kind of tracked by by Ronan, who has to make the final decision of whether or not Thrawn successfully solved the supply chain issue. Thrawn uncovered the person who was causing the disruption, brought him to justice, and did so in such a way that was unambiguous and clear and revealed a, a traitor to the Empire, right? Right. But Thrawn didn't solve the problem with the super Minox hitting ships. He never actually resolved that. He abandoned it to go solve this treason. And so Ronan makes the call. He's like, well, uh, yeah, you didn't actually do the thing. You didn't solve the Grillocks. Right. Right. Which is so interesting because it's, I think it's a, it, it does show the one flaw in Thrawn's characters, the lack of political thinking, but also the little bit of myopic focus that can happen yeah. because his overall goal was always, you know, he firmly believes the Empire has to survive. Yeah. He believes the Death Star is a hideous waste of resources. Yeah. Now, one very interesting thing in terms of his morality, he never once mentions that destroying a planet is immoral. Like, for him, it is always about, you know, and Eli Vanto brings that up. He never mentions that. Yeah. For him, it is just a strategic decision, which is kind of leaning him more toward the amorality, which I, yeah. I like. I feel like over the course of the books, he loses some of his idealism in that regard. Yeah. But he also winds up, in the end, he winds up losing out on the uh, TIE Defender program, which he thinks would have been better for the Empire. Right. And so he, he ends up getting to the end, and he doesn't even display any... Like, somebody else would be, like, raging, frustrated, throwing shit off of desks, right? Uh, right. And so he doesn't. He just says, I see, basically, and moves on. Right. And so he he realizes that he... Because he could have just figured out how to prevent Grillix from attacking ships. He had all the tools to do that. He could have spent none of his right. time on this uncovering trees and crap, right? right? And But Thrawn, fundamentally at his heart, isn't a bureaucrat, Right. A bureaucrat would do the task assigned to him, and that's it. Thrawn is a leader, and so he does what he believes are the higher tasks and higher callings. And sometimes he's punished for it, which is, the I think, the payoff in this case, is you realize that yeah. Thrawn is going to make big-picture decisions that are better but miss, miss trees when he's looking at the forest, right? Right. Yeah, I, th I think it's a really good way of putting it. And I will also say, in the fourth season of Rebels, um, he is still working on the TIE mm -hmm. Defender project, um, which I don't want to spoil, but we do get resolution to the TIE Defender project, and it's all tied up with him and Price and how that, yep. that winds up ending. Um, so looking at all that, because um, there's a couple things in this book that kind of tie into some of the larger questions I want to ask. We've been going for a while, so I don't want to go too into depth, but I think this is where the real fun part is. What is Thrawn? Is he an anti-hero? Is he a villain? Is he just an, a protagonist? Where would you think of him in terms of because again, like the first set of books, he's a villain. He's a fascinating villain, yeah. and a compelling villain. This set of books, like again, Zahn seems to really want to be like, eh, he works for the Empire, but <laughs> like, where, where, where do you wind up placing him? I also, think I think antihero root beer oh. that I have a bot. You keep taking sips of uh, the 1919 root beer that I have a can of in the fridge. So just I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Uh, so I think he's an antihero. Uh, that, mm -hmm. That's the cleanest, the cleanest thing that you can place him into, but he's. You could also call him a like, in some ways he's he's similar to Han Solo, right? Han Solo progresses from, from being a scoundrel, to to being a real hero, later, right? Right. And he uh, uh, Han Solo Han shoots first, right? He's not right. a nice guy, 
he's perfectly willing to betray Greedo. He's perfectly willing to just dip on all responsibilities that he's taken. I mean, Greedo's about to have him killed. Like, I, I, that's a whole other story. But I think there's nothing morally wrong with him I don't think there's first, anything but... morally wrong, but he put himself in a situation where he'd have to shoot a dude who's just trying to collect from him. Because he owes the money. It's not like it's right. not like he doesn't owe the money. And so he's placed himself in the situation. He's he's in hawk to. I'm going to put a pin in this, but we're going to talk about this in another episode. Right. But he's he's in hawk to loan sharks. He kills their enforcer, which like I I don't think that you're that you're morally wrong for it. But like being in with Jabba doesn't isn't a sign of a good person, right? That's fair. And That's fair. then he he wants to collect money and dip from then on, mm-hmm. right? He's right. like, all right, um, I'm going to take your cash and roll. And then he gets embroiled kind of because he has a crush on Leia, not because he yeah. thinks it's morally correct to join the rebellion, right? He's not he's not thinking with he's not thinking with his brain or his ethics. He's thinking with another lower organ, right? <laughs> and I, I, again, I'm going to put a pin in that because I think that's not why. I think he's also the loyalty he has to Luke. But sure, get get to your point. But, about, but my uh, point is that Thrawn, Thrawn is Thrawn is like that, in that he's. He, like what you want, what you want optimally from like a military science fiction character is you want somebody who has ethics and morality, right? Right. Thrawn has ethics but not morality. He right. follows the military law, the military rules. He's willing to do bad things as long as they're within the the code of justice that he set up, right? right. And so, I, or I would say he has a morality. It's just not one that we agree. Yeah, with. and that's that's fair. Um, but yeah. like he his morality isn't what we would consider like he isn't like a captain america like a good moral compass person right and that right. puts him pretty squarely into anti-hero but not scoundrel right he's not a scoundrel he's a he's lawful evil as a character if you look at yeah. D alignments and that's what he he continually falls on uh for for yeah. any different point and he he's the protagonist but he's in his in the the Vader and Thrawn book, he doesn't do anything outright evil and prevents Vader from doing atrocities on multiple occasions, right? He acts right. as a check on Vader doing actual evil things, which is kind of interesting, right? But I don't yeah. think he does it because evil or good. I think he does it because he thinks that he can get better information. And I think this is one of the things I find so interesting about the novels is because I think if you read the novels kind of on their own, divorced from everything yep. else, I think you're right. I think he's an antihero. I think he has some redeemable qualities. I think he has like uh, he's doing things in in service to a goal that he believes is right. And in the books, he's not presented with overwhelming evidence that that cannot possibly be true. Mm -hmm. In the larger Star Wars story, though, I think he has to be a villain because he is in service to something where – you know, knowing about the Death Star, knowing about the Emperor, knowing about all the other things he does, and especially because in Rebels, he starts to go even further. Um, mm-hmm. Again, this, I'm not trying to spoil things, yeah, but yeah. just kind of a, a point that's important to this. You know, he's very anti-civilian casualties. By the end of the Rebels show, he's willing to bombard civilian populations to get people to do what he wants. Right. So he's kind of crossed that line in his head. Um, and I think it's one of the things I find so fascinating about the books is it's like – I just – they present a version of th- – I, I just – He feels like he can be turned, right? He feels like yeah. if somebody made a compelling enough argument to him that the, that the Empire is a bad strategic decision to have, that he could be turned. Right. Like, let me ask you this. If he was still around, going on what Zahn writes, what do you think Thrawn does after the destruction of Alderaan? After the destruction of – Does he – does he – Yeah. 
does he find a way to rationalize it, or would that be the thing that makes him say, I, I cannot be a part of this anymore? So, it depends on who comes and talks to him, right? If he right. talks with Tarkin, he's going to have a, a, a straight-up, like, Tarkin is going to give him the, here's the deal. Alderaan was the the main supplier of, of material to the Rebellion. It produced a bunch of Rebellion leaders, right? Multiple Rebellion mm-hmm. leaders came from the planet, and we aren't going to be able to fix it. It's an unfixable problem, right? So we have some choices. We can glass it. Like, I could send in your fleet and tell you to pacify it. It spends more resources to pacify the planet than blow it up, because we already have this Death Star here, right? Right. And Tarkin would make this from a purely rational purely rational cost-benefit. If we already have the Death Star, which we do, we don't have to spend any more money on the Death Star, we have the choice. Right. We can pacify the planet, which will take a whole fleet, or we can shoot it once with the Death Star and be done with it. It's always which, going to be a problem. Which, is, is, I think, not unintentionally exactly the logic that's used to justify the nuclear bombing of Japan. Correct. Uh, at the end of World War II. Correct. Um, and so the the argument is we will have to spend infinite resources forever and k- probably kill as many people anyways, plus we have to kill a bunch of our troops. If we just destroy them, we don't kill a single troop and we keep all of our troop resources and save all those lives. And this is a very... <laughs> this is an argument that involves killing the entire civilian population of a planet, right? right. And... A literal genocide. Yeah, a literal actual genocide. And Thrawn isn't opposed to slavery, right? He doesn't free Wookiee mm-hmm. slaves. He doesn't free the Nogurai, who are slaves, right? In the yep. in the in the prequel or in the Heir to the Empire books. Uh, and so he doesn't seem to have any problems with these because as long as the Empire's strong, he thinks that like he isn't thinking in terms of like it's better or worse for people. But you could make the case that the Empire feeds people. Right. right. That people that more people will starve under an inefficient bureaucracy than an efficient one, and he thinks that the that the bureaucracy of the Empire is more efficient than the old republic. And that's a that's an incredibly utilitarian case. And if you get to the point where you're justifying, well, less people will starve if we blow up this planet, that's a <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of that, right? Like, yeah, that's that's a, that, and it, I think it's also very important there is as as you said it it depends who tells him. Right. Because Tarkin starts the story as all these people on Alderaan are a problem. Yes. Which is actually blatantly false. It is two people in the leadership of Alderaan who are a problem. Like, we later find out in Mandalorian that some other, but like, for the most part, Alderaan's planet is a peaceful planet. It's not a planet in rebellion. Um, Tarkin's blowing up of Alderaan is 100% about one person. Yes. Princess Leia. Uh, and maybe Bail Organa. person, Princess Leia. And, and, and yeah, maybe, and maybe some vengeance against Bail Organa. Right. So, like. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I, I think it's just, it's to me the real fascinating question. Was I, 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 to me, the only way I can make this make sense is, is sort of feeling like Zahn, Zahn wants Thrawn to be more of, an, of a heroic character than the rest of the writers of, of Thrawn do. Right. Uh, and that's just why it doesn't quite line up but it's still it's fascinating to think about and i think you're right it's easy to see it as like i want to think alderaan would be the thing that would make him like leave but i think you're right depending on how he how it's framed to him it's possible yeah and i also i think that if i think that if somebody who is connected with the rebellion very loosely comes up to eli vanto says eli this is crap they killed an entire planet full of pacifists right and for what they're like there's there's what do you get out of killing a planet full of pacifists and Eli would be like, this is horrifying. I'm resigning my commission. And he phones up Thrawn and he's like, look, dude, dude, 
they killed a planet full of pacifists. If right. you join us, you can bring your fleet. I bet you could just command your fleet to go against the Empire, and they would join us. I bet that we could right. decapitate the Empire in a week, right? With you yeah. in command of a rebellion fleet plus your fleet that are personally loyal to you. I bet we could we could decapitate the Empire. You can be in charge. It's fine. We don't care. As long as we get through the Emperor, right? And we have a Senate. We don't right. really necessarily have a problem with a strong leader. We have a problem with the Emperor being evil enough to blow up planets, man. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that might actually be, like, that's the other compelling argument to him. We can put you in charge of the whole military. Do whatever you want. Make as strong of a military as right. you want. It's fine. We'll work out a system where you can do that. You, can, you there's no flexibility in the empire. I I don't think Akbar goes along with that, but I think it leads to some great polit- political bureaucracy conversations. Which well, right. if he if he brought an uh, entire if he brought his entire fleet along, I don't think that Akbar could oppose him. I think if he shows up with an an entire imperial fleet, it, like like if he just shows up and he's like, look, I turned my whole fleet. You're right. They oust Akbar. Right, Akbar can't raise an I entire. Mean, fleet. I mean, that that that's a primary plot point in the original *Heir of the Empire* books. Right. But yes, I, I, it'd be a fascinating conversation. Yeah. Um, pulling it back to this though a bit, so let's move on from Thrawn, because I think you kind of answered this a bit, but I want to get into it further. To me, the other thing that's fascinating, like I said, yeah. the first book morally challenged me because I want to believe that everyone in the Empire is evil McEvil pants, but it's okay. Our our good character left the Empire. Now. Characters who by the first book, but especially even in the second and third, like Pharaoh is the the best example, mm-hmm. but there's a number of others who are decent people. They, they're military, and you can say all military are bad if you want. I think that's a position that I somewhat agree with to some extent, but like they're not mustache twirlers. Right. They're not evil McEvil. They're often like conscripts from poor worlds, yep. uh, or they're people who had no idea what they were doing. And they're all still fighting on the side of the Empire by the time we get to A New Hope. And I'm left with that third book feeling like, Zahn, what have you done to me? <laughs> You've now made me think about the fact that there are morally – that there are people who are not, ha-ha, I'm f- perfectly happy with them all dying, which I should never feel about that anyway. But right. you yeah, get my yeah. point. That's the way these movies work. I'm now forced to question the fact that there are some decent people within the Empire military – that our heroes are blowing away on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, where, where does that sit for you in terms of like learning this? Like, because you read a lot of military science right. fiction, I know especially. Yeah. So a lot of the time, you're in a really awkward situation in military science fiction because if you're writing really compelling fiction, you want you want anybody that your characters encounter to be somebody you can sympathize with to a certain extent, right? Right. You want you there. They'll oftentimes in, in they'll be scenery chewing villains at the top. But the people underneath right. them, you can turn, you can convince them, right? Um, a lot of like, a lot of the, the things will be like, look, the people in this military have been misled, or the people in the military believe that the only way to prevent them from being conquered is to make a war of aggression, and that's right. like that's that's a reflection of the real world, right? Like that's uh, we we can talk about the stuff that's happening out in the real world right now, but fundamentally, like. If you are part of a military that's attacking somebody else, that you you might be doing it for the strength of your homeland, you might be doing it because you've been misled, you might be doing it because you want some loot and bounty, right? And the loot and bounty people are the people that you have no problems, just like whatever, right? It's it's not it's not so big morally if the person who just wants right. to pillage your your country gets killed. Uh, that's always morally good, but like. 
the people who signed up because it keeps their family from starving. Mm-hmm. Right. Th- yeah. Those are always the people that are that are morally a problem. And you, you end up with this is a good this is a good moral question to come up with a lot is like if if you kill somebody who just signed up to feed their family, you're actually letting their family starve as a result of them dying because they can't send a paycheck back home. Well, what the hell? In some ways, it, it's one of the things that the post-cool movies introduced in a way but never paid off, yeah. which I was frustrated by, in that in the character of Finn. Yep. Like Finn is a decent guy. Yeah. He had no choice in joining the Empire. But we never get the moment of, wait a minute, so all the people who are in those white uniforms could be decent people as well. Yeah. And they're, they're, so, they, oftentimes they treat their friends like if you if you like if you made scenes of the stormtroopers relaxing in their in their uh, barracks afterwards, they'd be just mm-hmm. people, right? They'd be just chilling, right. hanging out, cracking jokes. Like they'll go out for a beer with their buddies, right? Right. And that's really disconcerting, right? Yeah. As soon it, the, the whole the whole goal of war is to dehumanize people because humans are really bad at killing other humans once they have empathy for them, right? Right. And I think that's one thing, and we've talked about this in superhero ethics before, that these movies are very good at is they don't want you thinking about the mm-hmm. fact that Captain America is killing actual people by the thousands. So either you present them as ugly aliens, which is almost always racially coded, mm-hmm. and we can get into all the problems with that. Or you make them so, again, so nameless, faceless, evil McEvil pants that we never think about it, we never worry about it. And I, I, I think that's one of the brilliant things that Zahn does here. And I know some other Star Wars writers have done it as well. Um, what is now my favorite uh, Star Wars novel, and at some point, hopefully, Rob will get you to read it and talk about it, Lost Stars by Claudia Gray, uh-huh. also does this. Because that's in part about there are characters in it who come from worlds that are completely lawless, that have seen the... The Separatist Army and the Republic Army have destroyed their planets, and now along comes the Empire to bring order and stability and make the trains run on time. And these six-year-old kids see the the TIE fighters fly overhead, and they're like, that's the greatest thing in the world, and I want to join the – and one thing I love so much about that book is that it – this is a minor spoiler, so skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this, but it's just an important thing. Alderaan happens in the middle of that book. And reading people in the Empire wrestle with just, and some of it can't, some of them leave, but some of them wrestle to justify it mm-hmm. is so heartbreaking. And and again, I think you have to judge anyone who could justify it. We're not heroizing them at all. But it it helps you understand how someone could do that, you know? And I feel like that to me is a very important, just poor, there's a lot of ways in which I, I do star, superhero ethics. I love when these books teach me things about the real yeah. world. Making me realize that, like, you know, there are 19-year-old Russian boys who are right now on Ukrainian soil because they believe that this is – that they are fighting Nazis, which yeah. is the Putin idea. Or exactly. they believe that – that or they believe that this will help their homeland. Or they believe that their families will be killed if they don't do – you know, and, like, yeah, it, it, it's I think my favorite part of the books. It, it's the hardest, but making me realize that – yeah, it's not all evil McEvil pants in the Death Star. And Kevin Smith had a point about, you know, who gets blown up in the third Death Star. Right. And you can, it, like, you can just view this in the real world even outside the context of Russia, right? If you actually mm-hmm. learn about U.S. history, we've done some pretty pretty rough things, right? Oh, yeah. We, like, you you mentioned Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but, like, there's there's a lot more, right? Like... Oh, yeah. People people point to like destabilized governments, but like 
look at the history of Venezuela. That's right. that's purely the United States tinkering with stuff and making a lot of people desperately in desperately terrible positions, right? Yeah, Vietnam, most of Latin America, yeah. South America, like you can see this. Yeah, and then and then like what I think about is even just on World War II, like in some ways Hiroshima and Nagasaki were not even the worst. Like yeah. the firebombing of Tokyo Dresden, was probably yeah. worse. Tokyo and Dresden were both terrible, right? And those were us. And so I would want to say every pilot who flew a plane over Tokyo that day or, you know, that they're mm-hmm. the most evil people in the world. But it's not. It's, it's the leadership. It's the decisions. And it's – I don't know because because I'm torn though because I, I think I can take that far enough to go, well, so it's not any of their faults. You know, and when I do think – like I think there is moral failure mm-hmm. when you obey an unjust order. But I also think that it's that, that it's very easy to sit back having never had to face right. that order and think, oh, yeah, they're all terrible. They should all be in jail when it's like it's just so much more complicated. Right. And it's it, this is the case in any bureaucratic system as well. Right? right. Like when I am at work and I decide that, you know, this company doesn't deserve an extra seat of software. Am I making a ethical or moral or just a justice based decision? I'm probably making a money decision based on my company not wanting to give away software. Right. Right. And that's like that on a small scale every day. And so we're drifting back into yeah. the superhero ethics territory that we we'll always like to talk about. But like is yeah. it's all tied in. Yeah, it's all it's all tied in. And if Thrawn is a character where you can see yourself, like anybody who who feels like they've ever like people who are like, yeah, I could be Thrawn. A, you couldn't, but I couldn't. Right. Like, I know this, <laughs> but like you, you can see yourself like. Yeah, sometimes I'm the person who makes all the smart and good decisions and does all the big mm-hmm. brain things. And, like, what does that lead to when you're, like, trying to figure out whether or not something's, like, are you part of a good or bad system, a just or unjust system? Are you getting, yeah. are you part of startups that will, you know, that will overturn, that will overturn existing infrastructure, right? Like, right. Yeah, I mean, and, it's, and it goes back to something you said. I want to kind of use this to close and leave you one yeah. last thought as well. Um, but you were talking before about how part of the point is that Thrawn, Thrawn's kind of built a cult of personality yes. with his own military, and that they will follow him whatever they do. Yep. And I think that's part of it is that Eli Vanto being an exception, in part because Eli Vanto gets to see the warts of mm-hmm. Thrawn. But for everyone else, part of what's established is – I don't need to morally consider the ramifications of my actions and the larger empire I'm fighting on behalf of because Daddy Thrawn does that. And if yep. Daddy Thrawn says that it's okay to do this, then it's okay to do that. And that to me is also a – I feel like that's a level of responsibility yes. that Thrawn never acknowledges and that is also important in terms of leadership in general. Yeah. You know, that like the, the leaders have to be very thoughtful about, you know, if you tell them this is okay, they're going to believe you. Right. And that that's, that's a problem. Right, exactly. It, absolutely exactly this happens all the time in life where you're you're like i only have so many spoons right to consider yeah. whether or not it is whether or not something's reasonable i would like to outsource this right i would like right. to i would like to like cede some responsibility for for certain types of decisions to somebody else who can make those decisions and i'll just be on board with them, right right and yeah exactly and that's not necessarily a bad thing always yeah. like spoons are limited but like yeah the, the discernment that has to go in and then the responsibility that has to be played yeah all right, so that's kind of all I got to say about this. Well, I've got a lot more I could say, but I want to wrap up. Uh, Rob, any of the last points or questions that we didn't bring up you wanted to get into? Um, just, like, I I would actually say just go read more Timothy Zahn stuff that's outside of his Star Wars works. He's just good. Yeah. Um, if you if you want to 
if you haven't read his Chiss books, the three, the three Thrawn, you know, Chaos Rising, those those super prequels set in the Chiss land, they have nothing to do with Star Wars. They're great, yeah. right? And so read read more of his stuff. He's good. If you want more similar science fiction authors, there's a lot of them out there that are very fascinating military science fiction, um, because that's right. what he's trying to write this whole time is just good military science fiction, and it's good. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's it's really good stuff, and it's a very nice like one of the overarching themes of all of his Thrawn works is this idea of like that the Imperial military basically got hijacked by these ideological, um, you know, the ideological that the that the Imperial military basically got hijacked by or the public military got hijacked by these Imperial mm-hmm. space wizards, um, and that's a really interesting dynamic that he plays with a lot. So, well, Rob, thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, where else can people find uh, stuff you're doing these days? Uh, I don't do a lot of stuff online. I do things with Good Luck High Five. If you mm-hmm. want to see me play Oathbreaker with them, um, do a lot of Magic, all Gathering, magic Gathering stuff. stuff yeah, there. I do mm-hmm. a, a bunch of things with them. Um, I do stuff with you, and I've been mm-hmm. on the Geek Bracket with uh, Judge JP several times. Not super recently, but he does really good work. Yep. So uh, go go listen to those and like. Yeah, definitely. Well, awesome to have you on. Um, for folks who are listening, uh, definitely check out some other Timothy Zahn books. Uh, Claudia Gray, who mm-hmm. I said w- wrote Lost Stars, is just – if you like the kind of questions we're talking about, it is fantastic. It also does something that I did not think it was possible to do in a Star Wars book, which is it has an actual believable romance <laughs> with even a couple of ste- scenes that are like, oh, that, that that's a little steamy there. Like there's some like sexual tension between these characters, which – I love the Darth Bane books, for example, but, oh, my God, the way they try to write romance is just painful. <laughs> um, so that book is really good. Uh, Star Wars Rebels, definitely check out. Check out all the coverage we're doing it on this podcast. Uh, if you want to check out the Superhero Ethics podcast that um, Rob has been a part of many times, yes. uh, you can find all those things at our website, uh, theethicalpanda.com. There also you'll find our contact information. Uh, you know, If you want to write in questions, we'd love to know. What do you think? Um do you love this character? Do you love these books? Do you think he's a hero? Do you think he works for the Empire? So there's no way we could have any kind of redeeming features for him. What do you think? Would love to hear your mm-hmm. thoughts. Uh, who do you think should play him in live action? Is a, a good, good question that's getting wrestled with a lot. Would love to hear your thoughts on that. Write into us. All the contact information is at theethicalpanda.com. So on behalf of myself, Rob, all the great people involved in this, thank you all so much, and have a great day. If you're interested in our new theme song, like what the heck was that? That is a track from my old band, Villains Lament. The track is called Villains Lament. And the band was named after the track. So I call it 
preponymously named track, Villain's Lament. Uh, it's available probably by the time you're listening to this podcast, all the places that you can find music. So, yeah. <laughs>